0: Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. As the burgeoning field of cell therapy evolves, so do the practices around obtaining the raw biological material needed to create these life-changing treatments. And one rather poetic source of cells ideal for many cell therapy use cases is the blood and tissue that can be collected at the birth of a new baby. But currently, in practice, the vast majority of this tissue is simply thrown away. Why is this? And how could the status quo be changed so that more life-saving tissue could be collected at the moment new life comes into the world? My guests today are Priya Baraniak, Chief Business Officer and Head of Process Development and Manufacturing at OrganaBio, and Lindsay Davis, Chief Scientific Officer for NextCell Pharma. They're going to tell you a little more about what those titles mean and what this organization So let's start with you, Lindsay. Uh, tell me a little bit about your organization and your role there.
1: Thanks, Jonah. So I'm the Chief Scientific Officer, as you said, at Nexcell Pharma. Um, I've personally been working in the field of advanced therapies for over the last 20 years, um, and I'm a specialist in mesenchymal stromal cell therapies. Nexcell Pharma, we are based in Stockholm, and we are a cell therapy company working with umbilical cord tissue-derived mesenchymal stromal cells, or MSCs as they're known, um, for the development of a cell therapy product for the treatment of different immune disorders, uh, with a primary indication of type one diabetes, but we've also worked with viral pneumonia such as COVID.
0: And just since our topic today is is sort of birth tissue and 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 collection and donation, uh, maybe briefly, what's the connection there at at NextCell, and and you know how do you kind of use those materials?
1: So our cell therapy product or our MSCs are derived from the Wharton's jelly, which is the tissue inside the umbilical cord that is taken after a baby is born. So we are able to cut the tissue and take that tissue to the laboratory and expand those cells in um, culture and generate a, a cell therapy product that can be intravenously infused to patients who have different disorders, such as type 1 diabetes.
0: And Priya, um, welcome to the show also. T- tell me a little bit about um, yourself and, and kind of your role.
2: Thanks, Jonah. Um, yeah, like Lindsay, I've been in the field of regenerative medicine um, for about 20 plus years now, uh, have started as a scientist at the bench and then serendipitously felt more into the business side of things, but really sit at the intersection of the science as well as the um, business at the OrganaBio, wearing my hats as chief business officer and also involved in process development and manufacturing. And so I'm a biomedical engineer by training. OrganaBio is a solutions provider to cell therapy developers like Nexcel. And so we have two wholly owned subsidiaries that are tissue sourcing businesses, one a birth tissue business and the other an adult apheresis business. And so we can provide tissues such as umbilical cord, to companies such as Nexcel, or we can isolate the cells from those tissues, stem cells, immune cells, and many different cell types, and provide those as cellular starting materials for cell therapy developers. We also have GMP manufacturing capabilities and provide clinical trial support services. So we've really tried to build an ecosystem of solutions that span the lifespan of the product lifecycle from research and discovery all the way through clinical translation. Thank you. So
0: while I was reporting a story actually about um, blood banks and, and blood donation and that's, and the role that space has in cell and gene therapy, this topic of birth tissue started to come up and it's really not a space I was super familiar with. So I wanted to kind of get into it with a couple of, of different experts, um, but we should be, you know, good scientists and start by defining our terms. So Priya, maybe you can start a little bit about kind of what do we mean when we say birth tissue, um, what are we talking about and, and what? why is it something that's so kind of valuable?
2: Sure. So by birth tissues, we mean any of the really supporting materials uh, that is needed to um, develop a child in utero that then becomes medical waste most of the time once the baby is delivered. So placental tissue, umbilical cord tissue, and umbilical cord blood at Organa Bio, we classify as birth tissue or perinatal tissues. Um, we also have the ability to collect neonatal foreskin as well from parents who are willing to donate that. And again, these more than ninety seven percent of these in the United States actually become medical waste because parents are not either banking them for their own use in the future or donating them for other purposes. And so it's very ethical in terms of collecting them from that um, standpoint. It's not invasive. These are being expunged by the body to begin with. And like I said, you know you're you're retrieving this tissue that might otherwise go in the trash because these tissues are such a rich source of a number of cells that have proven so effective in treating a whole variety of diseases and disorders that humans currently suffer from. And so these are stem cells, such as the mesenchymal stem cells or stromal cells that Lindsay's company works with, CD34-positive hematopoietic stem cells, immune cells, such as NK cells and T cells, placental tissue... Core tissue also has endothelial cells, smooth muscle cells, you name it. And so there's just so much potential in these tissues to further medical research and fuel the next wave of medical therapies.
0: And Lindsay, tell me a little more about kind of how how these tissues can be used um, maybe in the context of, of Nextcell.
1: So with Nexel, um as as Priya said, the these sources of tissues are really easy to access, and they're abundant because everybody who has a baby has has these materials. And like uh, as Priya said, they're they're normally discarded um so that they're easy to get hold of and and it's no pain or anything associated with donation for access to those tissues. So it's not the same as saying having a a bone marrow harvest done. Uh, which you know is a great opportunity for us to exploit them for cell therapy and tissue engineering applications. And next cell specifically, as I said, we use the umbilical cord tissue um, because that's actually derived from the baby's own cells. And therefore the cells coming from the umbilical cord are very young and they have the propensity to be able to be expanded a lot in culture and generate large amounts of cells that we can use to develop a drug product. In Nexo, our our product is called Protrans, and, and there we take the cells from five different donors. And after we've expanded them, we're able to actually pull them together, which allows us two major advantages. One, that we can increase the amount of product that we can produce in one go, but also, these cells are very clever in surveilling the environment they're in. And that's why they're used therapeutically because they can modulate the immune response and they can dampen it down and reset it. So patients who have immune disorders, this is something that's really good option for them. And when we pull them together, what we actually know is that you, you slightly activate them and because they see that they've got foreign cells around them. So they become what's called primed. Meaning that they're ready to act as soon as they go inside the patient. And we can create like a fixed dose of cells that we can actually then freeze down. And those cells can be shipped anywhere in the world and they can be thawed at the patient's bedside and infused into the patient directly. And the benefit of these cells are that they don't have to be matched like blood does or, or tissue does when you have like a transplant. So we can use them in any patient. They don't have to be uh, checked at all in that way uh, for compatibility. And it also means that you don't have any sensitization to the donors, uh, which means that if that patient in the future needs another cell therapy or a blood transfusion, they're not stopped from this because they don't have any antibodies against those cells that they've had. And the other major advantage of the product is that there's no serious side effects associated with it which is something that's very rare for, you know, a medical treatment that
2: acts on the immune system.
0: Definitely. Uh, Priya, you're nodding along. Do you want to add something?
2: No, uh, I agree with everything that Lindsay said there. You know, um, oftentimes part of the limitation in a cell-based therapy is that graft-versus-host disease, the risk of that or some sort of acute cytokine syndrome that might occur. We see that you know, with some of the CAR-T therapies even. MSCs are immune-privileged, as Lindsay mentioned, but also the more naive cells that you derive from the birth tissues that haven't seen the years of insult and injury and don't have that same inherent memory as adult cells, um, not only have the potential to expand more, but also don't elicit that same host response and you don't need that same HLA matching that you need at an adult level. And so from an allogeneic perspective, you have much broader application for those cells rather than an autologous, you know, one-to-one use that sometimes limits adult cells utility in the clinic.
0: Right, which also improves sort of some of the scaling and logistical challenges that are sometimes associated with cell therapy.
2: Not just scaling, but from a cost of goods perspective as well, when we look at some of the current autologous therapies that have hundreds of thousands of dollars as their price tag per dose or some of the gene therapies that are in the millions of dollars, if we can defray the manufacturing costs and all the quality control and testing costs over hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of doses, that brings that economies of scale to that therapy, brings that therapy's cost down significantly, and now we have the ability to democratize that much more and make it much more accessible globally to populations who need them. So it's a
1: really important point, Priya actually to sorry to, to bring up because you know we're, we're working towards having increased sustainability in in our manufacturing processes. And that comes with scalability as well. But also with having allergenic therapies that can be scaled in this way, it opens up an ability that it's not just countries with good infrastructure and financial capabilities to access these drugs, but actually we we can offer this truly worldwide, which which would be such a, an achievement for us to be able to do.
0: So I think, as you both pointed out right now, the supply here is, is quite limited, at least compared to what it could be, because so much of this tissue is just thrown away. Um, I guess, first of all, why is that? Is it um, just a matter of awareness? Is it, is it that the demand is, is still also kind of low? Um, you know, why, if these tissues are so valuable and, and useful, um, why is it that mostly it's just thrown away?
2: I, I think it is awareness and education. Um, We find that when our physicians that are trained under our collection network have the conversations with mom, just educating them. First off, the donation is a possibility. A lot of moms don't know that they can donate these tissues but then the rich composition of these tissues on top of that, right? So once they learn that they have the ability to donate it if they don't wanna bank it for themselves and that there's so much potential in these, we find that most moms are very open to that altruistic donation and willing to to make that donation Um, So education is key here in in collecting these tissues, also educating our physicians, right, and continuing their education on the use of the cellular components of these tissues, why they're important, so they can transfer that knowledge and that excitement to their patients. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, that's really the biggest limitation. Of course, when you set up a supply chain and you want to do it ethically under all the right approvals, not only from an IRB in terms of informed consents and patient safety and patient well-being or donor safety, donor well-being, but also thinking about the various regulatory testings and approvals that you need so that this tissue can be used in the U.S., outside the U.S., et cetera, there is complexity to that. So setting up the supply chain, while it's easy to access the tissue, setting up the supply chain with all the right ethical consents, regulatory elements in place does take a little bit of you know elbow grease, but once you've done it once, it's really not that hard to do that. And training our physicians again to collect, right? Because for a banking application for potential transplant use in the future versus a cellular starting material for cell therapies, there are some nuances in the testing needed and the way that that material is collected. And so again, it just comes to educating uh, donors and ed- educating doctors.
0: Um, Lindsay, do you want to add anything on, on that topic?
2: Um, I, I 100% agree with that. I think
1: uh, so. Nextel has been working very hard to increase awareness within the hospitals, uh, with the, the midwives especially, um, because they are the ones that really have the influence with the clinics themselves to say that this is not going to be a time constraint. It's not going to require uh, more doctors or a lot of paperwork for them, which are the the major things that they are pushing against because they are already up against, you know, very time constraints and limited staff resources. So I think it's having that relationship between the developer, such as Nexel, and the clinics themselves to say that this is a smooth process, that the developer can take the majority of the issues that Priya was talking about respect to the ethics applications and the Um, supply chain and how you would transport the material, how you would store it, et cetera. Nexcel themselves, actually, we associated with the company. We also run Scandinavia's largest um, banking for private banking, uh, Salaviva. And, And one thing that we found talking with the midwives that was that if we could prepare a collection solution and a little bag with everything that they would need, that this would just streamline everything. Um, and, the, and now the clinics are very, very happy to help and, and actively want to be involved with the work and learn how it's supporting other clinical advances.
0: You've both mentioned banking a few times. I mean, we can just take a little deeper and talk about that. What, what are kind of it, compared to how this tissue gets used when it's donated? Um, why, why would a, um, mom or dad, you know, if a new family make a decision to bank this tissue and what are the advantages there?
2: Lindsay, would you like to take that first?
1: Okay, uh, from, from our perspective, it, it's it's giving the parents control, really, and saying, this, this is your material. What would you like done with it? Would you like to bank these cells or the cord blood that in the future, that if your child may need this, that you have access to it? It is there. It's almost like an insurance or security for yes. them. And it's just offering them that opportunity um and if they don't want it then they can donate or they can discard that they're free to do that but it's it's an option for families to make their own decision about you know if they have a family history of something maybe they worry about it with their child that their child might develop something in a few years and it just it's just an opportunity for them to take control
2: yeah and and again from our perspective we have no intent of competing with the banking organizations. And in fact, what we educate our physicians on is that they first offer banking as an option to our parents, educate them on banking. And if mom and dad choose not to bank, then they introduce the Gaia Gift option of donating the tissues to Gaia Gift and that that is an option. I think for a lot of families, again, even on the banking side, they don't realize that they can bank their tissues, they don't realize that they can bank the tissue and not just the blood anymore. The cord blood banking industry has been around for a long time, but the banking of tissues is newer. Um, and then the other piece is the, you know, again, the economics of it. A private banking, you're paying for that, um, you know, a fee to begin with and then a year, an annual maintenance fee. And for a lot of families, again, who might not have a family history or feel an emergent need for that, then they they might decide that that financial cost is not something that they choose to bear
0: i mean as our understanding of these materials and their potential uh, evolves um it, there there's almost a conflict between two things you've said which is one that, that that what makes these cells so valuable is that they aren't limited to one person right they they can, they're adaptable and can be used in in many different people um and yet people are banking their own cord blood to treat that That child later on, which could would sort of imply that there is something unique about it that you know, that um, so how to reconcile that for me?
2: I think it's more of a um again, education as we collect more and more data, we're understanding more about um where that HLA match and to what degree it's important. And for different cell types, it's definitely there are differences, right? MSCs versus an HSC versus a T cell, you see very different immune responses when those cells are administered. So that data is still emerging. There's also, I think, just um, again, education in terms of putting someone else's cells into my body or my child's body versus our own cells, right? And so there there is maybe, I wouldn't say mistrust, but some malaise associated with the allogeneic realm um, for people who are not scientists and don't come from this space. And the other piece is also just um, regulatory. Right. So autologous use could be considered uh, easier from a regulatory standpoint than demonstrating that safety to the regulatory agencies. And so, again, it's just education, I think, at the core of it compiled with how do we take all of this medical data that we have and really disseminate it? much and and draw these correlations and causations in a much more powerful way to move the industry forward. And that that's a whole separate podcast you could do. Right.
0: <laughs> so you already mentioned um, that the collection itself is is easier in a lot of ways than something like blood or bone marrow that is more invasive. Um, are there any other issues when it comes to storing, um, you know, processing, uh, shipping, supply chain? Uh, what are, you know, what are some of the kind of challenges to managing this tissue from collection to eventual use in either in therapies or in some other kind of yeah treatment context?
2: Well, to begin with, you have a sterile field in the um delivery room or the operating room, right? It's it's not aseptic per, per se. And so um, you do have risk of contamination. With cesarean section deliveries, that risk is lower than with a non-cesarean delivery. And so it's it's important that the physicians, again, are trained or the midwives are trained in the handling of these tissues and the blood, to avoid any sort of contamination that would then preclude their use, you know, their further use. So in in the delivery setting, that is um, a limitation uh, or a consideration. But then from a storage and transport standpoint, you know, cells do have a limited viability. They do have limited time where they can sit at room temperature. And room temperature in Stockholm versus room temperature in Miami can be very, very different, right? Mm -hmm. So controlling for temperature, controlling for transport time, the solution that the cells might be in, and how quickly you can actually start to process or manipulate those tissues all become very critical. And From a regulatory standpoint, again, you have to have that chain of custody. You have to have defined processes and procedures for collection, for transport, temperature loggers, all of these things to demonstrate, again, that that tissue from the source to when it's a product is safe or the correct precautions have been taken to make sure that it's safe to then at some point go into a human being again.
1: And just to add to that, um, I would also say from a commercialization angle, there's also consideration there about the origin of the donor um, in as much that when you're commercializing the technology, you have to consider under the regulatory constraints of where you can use certain materials. So for example, if you have a European donor, Many European countries were the pe- the people have been exposed to to BSE then um, in the 80s. So, for example, the U.S. is doesn't like to use uh, mm-hmm. EU material. But if you have, for example, an Israeli donor, then they're pretty much what we would call a universal donor. So they can be accepted by the authorities all around the world. So that's another consideration because maybe, as Priya was saying, with the shipping, etc., maybe you want to have donor material that isn't coming from your local area. Maybe you want it from somewhere like Israel, brought in for processing with you, so that the product you're producing is not restricted for sale in the area that you you've taken the donor from. Um, so. There are some, some challenges there with, with validating procedures and making sure that material can go through those processes. But I, I think the the other one that's more specific to the birth tissue is that not only with the reduced contamination risk of planned caesareans, as Priya said, but if you have a labouring mom, it's very difficult to get informed consent. So, you know, a planned cesarean offers the opportunity for that mom to have the opportunity to to really think about what they're doing, inform their consent, and, and to sign before
2: giving birth. Mm. I think you, you raise a really important point, Lindsay, there in the consent process, right? And, um, you know, from our perspective, we always consent mom several weeks be- before her due date. Um, And so we have a strict policy never to consent a mother who is in active labor. Um, And I think that, you know, as we continue to grow as an industry add standards, uh, I think that is going to become a a further topic of discussion because we do see that happening at times from others where we find out that, well, we have to see if mom will consent and it's well, shouldn't she have been, she knew, for she's known for the better part of nine months that she's going to have this baby. Uh, So this is not a surprise to most people. Um, And so there is ample time to consent mom ahead of time. And so we have our doctors engage in that discussion at the start of the third trimester.
0: I mean, that's a good segue for what I wanted to talk about next, which is sort of how do you guys envision um how do the two of you envision the status quo uh, evolving on this when it comes to this collection what would you, how would you like to see this happen kind of in an ideal world and and what are the steps that your organizations and, and other stakeholders need to take to sort of get there and i guess i'm saying to kind of improve this this number of 97% of it is thrown away you know how do how do we get to sort of a new normal where Uh, where a lot more tissue is collected, especially as we develop more cell therapies and and might increase the demand for this tissue.
2: Yeah, I I I I think... Go ahead, Lindsay.
1: No, please go. Sorry. I I can take it from, from our perspective. And I think here it's quite interesting to have Priya and I both on the call because the EU perspective is slightly different to the US perspective here. So I think you'll get two different answers, which will be very interesting. But from our perspective is working very hard to increase awareness to the the mothers um, so that they know that, one, this is an option, and two, this is a safe option for them, and that their material, their data, it's all protected, and that they don't have to worry about these things, and that they can withdraw consent, that if they sign a consent form, they can still withdraw that consent if they change their mind. And that's really important because they're about to go through something quite stressful and life-changing, and we don't want to be part of that stress for them. So that that was be the first thing I would say was more interaction with the public to increase awareness and put their minds at rest. I think the second thing moving forward with an industry is really to, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to do through my role at the ISCT with the EU task force, is is to increase in communication with the authorities, um, to change the legislation, mm-hmm. to streamline processes, infrastructure, and get those different parties working together to make this a successful and accessible business. Right now, many people choose banking, as we discussed, because there aren't commercially available products. Right now, many of them are still in development and in clinical trials. So you have to have a certain indication to be able to access them. So it's really bringing all the parties together and saying, how do we streamline this? How do we make this work? How do we make this product have a longevity that it will last in our market? It will be priced and accessible to everybody but also it's safe and it's standardized. And I think this is one of the major things with cell therapies when you've got so many in development across the world is that we need standardization in our practices in order
2: to really evaluate the data that's coming out and compare like with like. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And the ISCT is doing a lot of great work on that front, as are some other organizations, Standards Coordinating Body, etc. So yeah, I I agree with everything that you said. As you mentioned, very different considerations at times for the US versus Europe or Asia, right? Um, There are some geographies where collecting birth tissue is not an option from a regulatory perspective. And then you have to figure out how you get therapeutics developers in those areas' birth tissues. So there are cold chain considerations, right? And how do we come together and make cold chain easier? globally. Um, That's a big discussion. But even something as simple as the collection process again is not standardized, right? Ten years ago, we used to see birth tissue units or cord blood units that were 150 mls. You you really can't get that anymore if you're following the proper guidelines, at least and guidances in the US at least. The American College of Gynecologists has now said that there is overwhelming data that return of some of that cord blood to the newborn right after birth does wonders for the baby's immune system and well-being and so delayed cord blood clamping is now the standard of care in the US and depending on the you know the pregnancy whether there were any complications during pregnancy any known uh, issues with the mom or the baby and then the how the baby looks upon birth, right? How healthy the child looks. Um, That delayed clamping can be anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes. And so, you know, you're seeing that return of blood to the baby. That's the most important thing, you know, health of the mom and the baby. The tissue collection comes secondary to that. And so, we don't see those robust cord blood units anymore. So, again, standardizing collection processes, procedures, the ethics of it. And even compensation right uh, we do not compensate our mothers for birth tissue it is a purely altruistic donation now we have an adult apheresis business as i mentioned and on that side we do donate or compensate our adult donors and we find that they are not coming in to donate you know sit in a chair for 4 to 6 hours for a leukapheresis procedure out of altruism they you know the money the monetary compensation is important from the EU's perspective, then that tissue becomes problematic for our EU customers if we, do, if we compensate the donor. So how do we standardize to ease, you know, use globally, collect the same way, assess the same way and make these therapies much more readily accessible to the therapeutics developers or the the material accessible to the therapeutics developers and then downstream accessible to patients are all evolving conversations and very important conversations over the next two to five years as cell therapy and gene therapy can continue to explode.
0: Absolutely. You hit on um, one other thing I was going to ask about, which is this sort of that compensation question um, for, from an ethical standpoint, uh, and I know we talked about this when we talked about uh, blood um, and and. Uh, donations for Use in Cell Therapy Development, uh, is there a difference between something that's being collected and then synthesized into a drug that's sold by a for-profit company? And Then is there some obligation to pay the people who provided the that material, or how how do you sort of feel about that question, or is it is it a settled question?
2: Yeah, <laughs> it, it it's not settled. Again, it's really being driven by legislators and regulators, and this is where to Lindsay's point, we we need to have these conversations with all of the stakeholders, you know, who need to come together to make these therapies a reality. And there's a lot of educating not only to be done of our regulators, but also our legislators on the science behind this, the promise of this, and you know, from a from a fundamental level, the the issues with compensation make a lot of sense, right? You're protecting vulnerable populations, it can be a slippery slope, you don't want it to lend itself to any sort of nefarious black market or people, you know, you're preying on people who are who are vulnerable who need that money. At the same time, to your point, Jonah, I think you can make a strong argument that if a company eventually stands to make millions and millions of dollars from that donation shouldn't a nominal compensation to the donor be a drop in the bucket and not a big deal so it's it's a very complex issue right it's not a simple one and at the heart of it again is donor safety, patient safety, and human well-being. Um, And so there's the well-being of the patients and we're trying to solve that. But at the same time, you have to also ensure that the safety and the well-being of the people from whom you're deriving these tissues. Um, So I don't have a good answer for you. And I think this is going to continue to be a point of discussion uh, for a while. We're not really close to, I think, harmonizing this on a global level.
0: Especially when you think about how insanely expensive it is to have a baby in this country. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could <laughs> offset that just a little bit? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it, I definitely agree. It's, it's a complex question. Um, Lindsay, if you want to add anything on that. Um, otherwise, I'd love to get final thoughts from the two of you as, as we move to wrap up.
1: I think the only thing I would add to that is that we need to remember that this is a relatively young industry. And and st- so we're very much still in the steep learning curve. And that's why we need to have everybody involved because legislation is constantly evolving and it's a very dynamic legislation when you talk about cell therapies or, or any form of advanced therapies. Um, it's evolving yearly. And you know we, we're bringing in now a, as a lot more products are moving towards markets the reimbursement strategies and how we're going to deal with this as well, because I mean, there's a lot of ethical constraints there to be dealt with. Uh, there's kind of like global differences in how healthcare is dealt with. The U.S., you know, obviously has a very different structure to many of the state-based systems within within Europe um, or or even in Asia. So I think, as Priya said, this this there are so many topics here that are yet to be. Standardized or or even explored, and, and we're learning as we're going. That okay, you know now now we find a new topic that we really need to think about, and but it's exciting, and that's what I would like to to kind of end with is that this is a really exciting area of development. There's so many opportunities here that can be exploited for the benefit of the general public, and that's our aim at Nexel to really bring products to market like ProTrans, so that we can help those patients that have unmet clinical needs right now. They don't have drugs to to deal with. So so these are new opportunities. We just have to put the right legislation and practices in place to protect the donors, the patients, as well as the industry as a whole.
0: Any final thoughts, Priya?
2: Yeah, it's such an exciting time in regenerative medicine and medicine. The next five to 10 years are really just going to revolutionize the standard of medical care worldwide. Um, I really, I have a very strong passion for seeing these democratized. And as we talked about, not making it accessible only to the 1%, right? And, And allowing everyone, every family that's suffering to have a means of bettering their family's life, their loved one's life, or saving that life. Um, and i we're moving in the right direction, um, but it's really going to take, I think ultimately we all want the same thing and we just have to come together in a more powerful way to really cut to the heart of the issues. And and really standardize and harmonize not just within each of our countries or regions but more globally. And those conversations are starting to happen. At Organabio, we you know we're not a therapeutics developer. We look to solve common denominator issues in the industry that are holding the cell and gene therapy industry back as a whole, and provide broad sweeping solutions to that. And so we are always listening to these conversations, participating in them, and then thinking creatively about how we might. Continue to offer those solutions or, or make create those solutions so that we can move these therapies to clinic faster.
0: Thank you both so much for joining me. This has just been a, a fantastic, a really fascinating conversation uh, for me, and I hope that our listeners have gotten a lot out of it too. Um, uh, any anything you guys want to plug or pitch uh, for our our pharma industry listeners if they've um, if this has sparked their imagination that they want to get in touch.
2: Yeah, they can always reach out um, via our website or priya at organabio.com. It's very easy to find me or LinkedIn is a great way to find me as well. Um, And I think, you know, one other thing that I would say just based on this is, while we're all focused on our companies and what we're working on and developing what, what, we're, what our mandate is, we have to remember that for this industry to move forward, for our vision to truly be realized, we also have to take that time to participate in these panels, to participate in these discussions, to go out and educate the public on these issues. So I think that advocacy element is really important.
1: Yeah, I would echo that 100%. And anybody who wants to, to get in touch with us about our services, welcome to do so on our website or on our, our LinkedIn page as well. But yeah, I think it's an exciting time and education is key here. We've, we've mentioned it a number of times and I think it's being open as well as developers um, and service providers in this area to say, please come ask us the difficult questions. Uh, And we we will tell you how how things lie right now and our blockades um, and where we're working to to open the doors for the future so that they as the public have access to what they need to live a healthy life.
0: Thank you both so much for joining me and uh, hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have.
2: Thank you. Thank you, you, Jonah.
0: That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharmaforum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharmaforum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharmaforum. Thanks for listening.